Welcome to Scripps Talks. Today we have Nick Hershon joining us from New Jersey or New York City. Where exactly are you situated at this moment, Nick? I'm in New York City in Queens, New York, my hometown. I do teach at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, so that gets a little bit uh, confusing for people, but uh, I'm in New York City. First of all, let's fill in our audience a, a little bit about who the real Nick Hershon is. You know, you, you came and did your PhD in the Scripps School not too many years ago and are thriving as an assistant professor of journalism at William Patterson. Talk a little bit about your research interests and the things that define who you are as a scholar and as an academic. Certainly. And thank you, Dr. Stewart, for having me on your podcast for thinking of me. For me, I was a reporter before I was an academic. I was a reporter for six years for the New York Daily News, did some freelancing for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and then I came into the Scripps School of Journalism in 2013. And so I felt that I had some knowledge of what the business of journalism was like, having been out there in the field. I also just had a lifelong interest in history. So I wanted to kind of merge those two things, and I'm a gigantic sports fan. So looking at how do sports journalists cover some of my favorite teams in the New York City market throughout history was something that was really exciting for me. And that's where all of my research really has lied. I mean, a lot of it is baseball and hockey are my two favorite sports. So I've done some research there. My dissertation was about hockey, but a lot of local history too. I told you I'm in Queens, New York, which is one of the other non-Manhattan boroughs of New York City, and it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's where I'm from, and I kind of hate that it's been forgotten in a lot of places, so I like doing research that brings attention to that. Well, we know the COVID-19 epidemic has struck that part of New York City very, very hard, and I'm wondering if you could just give us a perspective on what it's like to, to live there through this time, just your daily life and what that's like? Well, honestly, since this began, March 11th or 12th or whichever day it was, I have not really gone out of my house much at all. The only times I've been more than uh, out to take my garbage to the curb or start my car, I drove around a block or two a few times just to keep my car running, and that's been it. I have not walked out to any other place. I've been getting my groceries delivered, and at the start, it was very difficult to even find time slots for that. You had to stay up very late at night just to quickly click and reserve a time slot. I haven't seen any of my friends or gone to any of the places I used to go to since March, and it's very strange. At the beginning of all of this, I live not too far away from a highway that connects Brooklyn and Queens. And every now and then, when I, I grew up in this house, and you know, I remember hearing some ambulances over the years, but I would hear the constant wail of ambulances coming over, and it was just getting so jarring because you know that that's someone else who's affected by this, um, and you kind of can't get it out of your mind. Living here has been strange in one way. A lot of my world has not changed internally, right? I spend so much of my time, pretty much all of my time inside this house, but I'm doing online teaching, and I've, again, not been able to experience all of these things that I'm used to doing with my friends, and it's, it's hit hard in so many different ways. Now, I know that it hit particularly hard with one of your students succumbing to COVID-19, and I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear a bit about him, what he was like, and what it was like for you to work with a student who was suffering. 
his name was Christian Avilas, and he took my media ethics and law class at William Patterson last fall, was a standout student. We did two mock trials as part of that class. He volunteered both times to play the defendant in the mock trials. A very smart student who actually wasn't a journalism major. Uh, he was a double major in public relations, and I think it was sociology outside of our department. But he had to take some of the journalism classes as part of his degree requirements, and so that's why he had me twice. And then he was taking my class this semester in news writing. Always a very active student. Every single class, he'd be raising his hand multiple times, asking questions, always with a smile. Not like the most um, exuberant student, I would say. You know, he wasn't someone who was like always jumping out of his seat, but he uh, had this kind of quiet leadership quality to him. The kind of student that you have in class and you're like, this guy's going to go really far. I'm going to see, I don't know what field he's going to go into. Maybe it won't be journalism, but he's going to do something great. And then our classes went online in March. And in our first online class, Christian was there, but he said to everybody that he was not feeling well. And he kind of gave symptoms that sounded like he might have coronavirus. He was still though active in class. He was doing everything that you would expect. Then he, he missed a class uh, about maybe a, a month later and he emailed me to say, like, thank you for being concerned about my health because I had contacted the university and said, you know, Christian said he wasn't feeling well. Maybe you can connect him with some resources. And he confirmed, yes, the university got in contact with me. Thank you. I'd rather not go to the hospital because I don't want to overwhelm the system right now when there's so many sicker people who are more in need than I am, which is just heartbreaking to read as you now you know, hear this story. And he also said he didn't have uh, health insurance at the time, so he was afraid of going in. And then I guess a week after that, I got an email from the university I couldn't believe that was titled The Passing of Christian Navillas. Mm-hmm. And it's stunning when you're a professor. You know, I've taught college courses now for just over a decade. I've never experienced anything like that. And with a student as bright and just, you know, uh, such a positive guy who, uh, you know, who's 20 years old, you don't expect someone to be on your roster in January and not be there in April. I've talked about so much is the only reason why I'm not crying with you right now, because I, you know, cried many times and I getting through that class with those students was so difficult, but it shows us how serious this is. And let's not let these people just be numbers. You know, you just see numbers on screen of how many people have gotten the virus or passed away. And it's easy to kind of forget. These are all people who impacted a lot of other people who are our friends, our family, and in this case, our students. It's, uh, you know, it's very sad. Well, we're very sorry for your loss and obviously for his family. What a devastating blow for such a active and uh, intelligent young man. It does show that the cost of this virus is very real. Certainly, and I know maybe some people aren't feeling it as much as we are here in New York, New Jersey, but at the beginning of this, there were multiple people in my life who got the virus. I also had written a piece for the Columbia Journalism School's website. I teach there as an adjunct in the summers, and it's my alma mater, and I wrote a piece about this was before Christian had passed away, and my own family doctor of 25 years had gotten the virus and was on death's door apparently. His family went on CNN twice to talk about this 
Thankfully, he recovered. And then he himself, my own doctor, was on CNN talking about his condition and how he had gotten better. But that was like, are you kidding? I mean, this is, you know, some of the closest people that I knew. And just so many acquaintances, you start hearing these stories, you start getting overwhelmed. This, you know, is my entire network, my support system, all of my friends, are these people all going to be, you know, is this going to hit me next? It's just such a unbelievable thing to have occur. Early on in this outbreak, I reached out to a, an acquaintance, a colleague in China at a communication program there to see how he was doing. And he said, you know, we're all fine. But he said, do everything you can to avoid getting this virus. It's bad. Hearing my doctor tell his own harrowing tale, his name is Dr. Arnold Wegg, and he was on CNN talking about what he went through. And even for someone who has practiced medicine all their life and is maybe not as squeamish as some of us who you know, haven't been as familiar with that, and him describing what he went through, obviously it hits people in different ways, but uh, that's why I've tried to be so extra careful myself and stay home, get, get groceries delivered. I know some people are in different situations and they have to get out, or maybe they're not in a situation as uh, dire as it has been in New York and Queens especially, but... Let's uh, try to do everything we can to stay safe so that we can avoid that. Well, I'm glad that you have managed to uh, stay safe, and it sounds like you're on a path to stay and remain safe, so I'm happy to hear that. What about your interest in sports and attending live sports events? You know, you obviously, uh, I'm sure, are like many sports fans, are grieving the lack of sports happening right now, but at the same time, you're acutely aware of the danger. So how is that playing out in your mind? I had a whole, you know, I had a bunch of games that I was going to be going to right at this time that this hit. I have a ticket plan for the New York Islanders hockey team, my favorite team, and the New York Mets baseball team. And the Islanders were just making a playoff push and it was uncertain if they were going to make the playoffs, but they were right on the kind of fringe there. And when this hit, the last sports event I think I went to was right at the end of February. I went to an Islanders game in Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And then the Mets were about to start their season. And actually, right when this began, I got in the mail a big box from the Mets saying, 2020 season tickets, looking forward to all these games. And I was supposed to be at opening day and all of the, I mean, my entire Google calendar, if you look at it, which is populated with like every week, there was like one or two Mets games. It's a big part of my life in the summers. On the one hand, obviously, I understand what's going on and I do not want them to come back in front of fans until it's 100% safe for it to occur. So don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, it's just another sign of, you know, this is something that is such a big part of my life. It's how I spend my time. It's a lot of my social you know, network. It's how I, you know, I get together with friends at these games and I study sports. Uh, so it's just surreal to imagine months at a time without games. And I've tried to watch some of the sports events that haven't allowed fans and it's just not the same to not hear the roar of the crowd in the background when some dramatic moment occurs. So I don't know what it's going to be like, but in the interim, it's like, all right, I try to look at it as a positive. I have more time to watch all of these movies that people have recommended over the years. So I've watched a lot of, you know, streaming movies, Disney Plus, uh, whatever else, and try to use that to get through. You are a, a historian, and you know we can talk some about your own research, but I want you to 
play a little mind game with me. Fast forward 30, 40, 50 years to a time when we hope the coronavirus is under control by then. What will sports historians say about this time period? You know, all the record books, all the asterisks that you can imagine, all the blank lines from the season records. Think about all these athletes under contract and these teams without much income coming in. What do you think as a historian is likely to be the outcome of this for uh, as it's studied historically? Well, I wonder very broadly whether Americans will ever embrace sports again the way they had. I right now cannot imagine that at the end of February I was in a hockey arena with 16,000 other people and that I was going to be going to a baseball stadium with maybe 40,000 other people in such close proximity. I don't know if people, even when the country starts opening up, people are going to be comfortable with that and what it'll look like. I think back to, you look at these old photographs of baseball games from the 1930s and 40s, and all the guys are wearing hats and suits and ties, and you're like, that's crazy. Why are they wearing that? You know, now we just wear T-shirts and jeans. Maybe we're going to look back and we'll say, like, that's kind of weird. Why are people sitting seven seats away from each other and all wearing face masks and rubber gloves and stuff if this resumes? I think in the interim, this period since March where people have now found ways to kind of live without sports, they may have just replaced it in their lives. And these sports may experience a situation where you have to win back fans and kind of convince them to come, just like has happened historically after a work stoppage when there's a strike or a lockout and the league is gone for a while, people just say, you know what, fine, I'm going to have to do something else to entertain me. And in this age when we have so much that comes right into our house with the streaming services, maybe people will just uh, not be interested in sports ever. That's kind of like some of the bigger questions that I have. Will it ever hold that kind of place in our society? And then, yes, there's these individual questions of what will it look like? How will people feel? Does this kind of highlight the have and have-nots? You know, How come these athletes are being able to get two or three tests a day and access to the best 24-7 medical care just to play a bunch of baseball games in front of no fans in Arizona or Florida. And meanwhile, there may be people thinking like, hey, I haven't been able to get tested or I haven't been able to get a doctor's appointment. And that's, you know, I used to root for this team and love these athletes, but hey, how come they're getting all these priorities that I'm not? So that might hit people too. Have you done any research on what happened during the Spanish flu? Most of my research really focuses, you know, it's the latter half of the 20th century. The earliest I've done is like the 40s. And even since this began, I haven't really looked into much of that. I haven't thought much about that. It's all a little bit too real for me right now. And it's sort yeah. of like, I don't want to read about how terrible it was during the Spanish flu. I just want to watch some <laughs> John Wayne movies and think it's the Wild West to get excited about that. Well, I hadn't really thought of it until just now, you know, talking to you. We're always going back to the Spanish flu as a touch point. And I just realized, you know, there were professional sports in 1918. Maybe not much because of World War I. Perhaps there wasn't much going on. Right, but how were they adjusting to that? I've seen some photographs of, I feel like, college football games and college athletics where there are very few spectators or the spectators are wearing masks. You know, so I've, I've seen some of that. But I don't know. And like you say, there's going to be all these questions about records 
if a team does come back and resume the season, like if the hockey season resumes, there's been this conversation going on on social media. Whichever team wins the Stanley Cup, it'll be an asterisk around it, right? Yeah, they won the Stanley Cup, but it was only because they had this short season and it's a totally different situation. They weren't playing their home games in their home arena. Uh, there's going to be a million excuses. I am kind of of a mind of like with the Mets and the Islanders, I'd rather this not be the year that they finally win a championship during my <laughs> fandom. <laughs> it would be like just it would suit me perfectly where you it's like, oh yeah, this is the one year run. I can't go to the games and when everyone's gonna question the legitimacy of this title. Any excuse for a Met fan to, to not expect to win, I think that's a good a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, some are rooting for it really hard still, but I just think it is, you know, someone who's gone to so many games over the years, it'll be so strange to be like, you know, at my home alone cheering because they won the World Series. <laughs> a very surreal moment for all of us, and that's one of the things that I am so struck by with the coronavirus COVID-19 situation is that there really isn't anyone on the face of the earth, I, I don't think, who isn't affected by this somehow. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I hope that that brings us together more and makes us understand that we all need each other to get through this. In a way, it's highlighting that we can be self-sufficient, right? We can stay at home for long stretches of time, not interact with others and get through. But even for me, right, staying home, I've still relied at times on Uber Eats and the grocery deliveries, and I'm certainly relying on other people in ways and uh, just in uh, having conversations with other people that help us all get through these times and understand we're not alone. So I hope it brings about some more of that kind of compassion and awareness from folks uh, because it is hitting us all. I may be getting it more in New York than you may in Ohio, but I know that it has changed your life in dramatic ways too, I'm sure. It hopefully brings us together. Just think about if this had happened 20 years ago and how difficult yeah. it would have been to maintain some of those um, social social contacts. I know you teach journalism and social media, and I wonder if you have any observations about how media and people are using social media perhaps differently during COVID-19. I see that a lot of journalists, well, uh, there's been... I've seen a lot of things all over the place. I was just thinking of a reporter who actually interviewed me about my research a year or two ago on Long Island for News 12, a TV station. He just posted something about how he was covering a, I guess, a open the nation up again rally out on Long Island and was getting all of these uh, – vicious remarks from people and you know a bunch of people in maga hats uh, trump supporters saying you know fake news and get out of here and really yelling at him and his tweet went viral and i saw katie kirk responded and he, you know became a big deal so i think some people are still going out there and reporting but they're facing a lot of the same skepticism that some members of the public have towards doctors and medical experts at this time. That sort of anti-intellectualism is hitting a lot of them. And then for some journalists, I'm seeing them just be more open. You know, we're told as journalists, it's not about you, it's not about your situation, and you've got to kind of be distant from some things, don't open up too much about yourself and overshare. But I've seen a lot of journalists who have gotten the virus and have gone on social media and documented that, shown pictures of the way that they looked, videos where you can see that they're really not feeling well. And of course, that's interesting information. That is stuff that serves the public well, because they want to know what are the effects of this. But it also kind of makes the journalists feel more authentic, 
you know, there's some sort of a division that we sometimes have of like, well, the journalists are the elite, they don't mingle with the public, and they're kind of on this upper echelon. And this kind of reminds us that, well, no, journalists are susceptible to this stuff, too. They don't have like, uh, you know, any sort of special immunity where they can report from, uh, you know, 100 feet up and just uh, look at this like they're being affected. That's kind of the stuff that struck me a lot. We're all subject to this viral infection. There is no force field around journalists. We're even facing this question with respect to the possibility of opening the campus back up in the fall. And faculty members are very concerned about students bringing uh, COVID-19 into the classroom, sure. uh, lecturing with masks on. And I, I wonder what kind of discussions are going on at William Patterson. There have been very broad discussions right now about all of our summer classes are online. The fall, we still don't know. And the same sort of concerns that you said are going on in Ohio are certainly going on in my mind. I you know, can only speak for myself there, but that same idea of how are we possibly going to do this in a way that suits the educational needs of the students and at the same time keeps everybody safe. If we're used to teaching classes where you have like in some of my classes, might be 25, 30 students in a media law and ethics class, for example, a non-writing class. And how do you possibly fit them into a classroom where you can still socially distance? And are you really going to have everybody going through temperature checks and having a test right as they come into the class and right as they leave? Are they really all going to wear masks? How about if one person resists wearing the mask or takes it down for a second in an unintentional good faith way? They just think they need a breath of air for a second and then they cough and then everybody gets freaked out. I mean, I think we're all sort of on edge about this and we just don't know enough information. And that's what's so scary about you know, how this goes forward. So I don't know. I, you know, this is the first time that I've taught online, uh, exclusively online like this. It certainly has its shortcomings. I love the face-to-face -face of you know interacting with the students. I just think you get so many great side conversations. It allows you to just get to know each other better and I think feel more comfortable about each other. At least in the spring, I was able to start the semester that way before we went online. So like they knew me from you know seeing me physically. But it's kind of strange to think about starting a semester where you're doing it completely online. It just changes everything about what uh, I know about instruction. Um, and, and getting feedback is, uh, for me, it's been very strange when you're teaching online and you just can't scan the faces in the audience there and see, are they following me right now? Do they look confused? They, are they laughing? Are they smiling? Is, you know, is things going all right? It's kind of hard when some people have their cameras off and you can't see everybody and you're not sure. A lot of things to navigate. I want to talk about a non-COVID-19 topic for a moment, just to take a little break from that. And that is about your, uh, your work with your SPJ chapter. And this was something that you were recognized for by the, the National SPJ uh, organization. So maybe talk a little bit about why you started the SPJ chapter and some of the things that you did, which uh, were recognized by the National SPJ organization. Sure, and thanks for bringing that up because that's something that means a lot to me. I've been a member of SBJ since 2008, since I was a reporter, and I bought a lifetime membership to that organization because I just felt it's a great way to network and to kind of show you're serious about journalism. You may be a practicing journalist, but you also want to interact with journalists outside of that and be connected to resources. So I graduated from Ohio University in 2016, and I started at William Patterson, and then the next year, I 
was approached by my chair who said, why don't we run like some sort of a guest speaker series? And he knew that I had been bringing in a lot of guest speakers to my classes. Why don't you maybe expand that and have it open to everybody to hear from some of these cool guest speakers who are working in journalism? And that's when I brought up to him the idea of why don't we start an SBJ chapter? And that could be one of its initiatives. I just love how an SBJ chapter can increase the journalism culture on a campus. It can show that even when you're outside a class or maybe some campuses have a better school newspaper than others, you can have these interactions with like-minded students who are excited about journalism. And it gives me as a professor kind of an excuse to contact some of these journalists and say, hey, we want to go on a tour of your newsroom or can you come in and speak to my students or all of these kind of creative ideas you can have about how to uh, get students seeing that you can still have a career in journalism, even though it's a tough landscape out there. There are a lot of people who want to encourage you to become mentors, lead you to internships and jobs. And living as we do in the New Jersey, New York marketplace, there are just so many places we can go to to learn more about it. So started in 2017, I've kind of exhausted every resource to take students around. I mean, we've toured the sports radio station that I grew up listening to in New York, WFAN, and SNY, which is the TV station that broadcasts the Mets games. We've shadowed sports reporters as they've covered games. Uh, One of my friends, Dennis Gorman, who writes for the Associated Press, covers a lot of hockey games. So we went to the Prudential Center where the New Jersey Devils play, and we've shadowed him there a few times so they get a sense of what's it like to be a sports reporter on deadline. We've shadowed a theater critic. We've gone to all of these different conferences. SBJ has had regional conferences in Boston and Philadelphia that we've gone to. It's just a way for me to get to know some of the students better, for me to show them, okay, maybe you know some of like the skills of journalism, but let's kind of go beyond that, have some fun, and show you this whole world that is out there that you might not experience. It's something that I certainly didn't get when I was going to my undergraduate program. Once I went to OU, I started to appreciate how great it is to have that culture around you where there are just so many super smart, talented people with great experiences where like, you know, you just bump it to someone in the hallway of Scripps Hall or Schoonover Center and it'd be like, oh my God, this person like worked at CNN or, you know, MSNBC or what, like they've worked at the New York Times. They have all these great experiences. And I wanted students to kind of get a little bit of a sense of that. Let's wrap this up with a, a little bit more of your experiences at OU. You, you're a New York guy, New York City guy, but you found your way to little Athens, Ohio and Ohio <laughs> University and the Scripps School. Tell our listeners a little bit about why you chose to come to OU and and what your experiences were like here. I mean, some of the best years of my life. I know it's so cliche to say that, and I had a feeling you might ask me about that. And I'm thinking, how can I say this without sounding so mushy and so cliche of just like, Dr. Stewart, the best years of my life. But it truly was. I had grown up in New York and lived my entire life here in New York City, in Queens, for the first 26, 27 years of my life before I came to OU. People had associated me so much with Queens, I still remember when I posted on Facebook that I was going to be going to OU for my PhD program. Someone wrote, wait, where in Queens is Ohio? Um, (laughs) Because they just couldn't imagine me possibly leaving Queens. 
a piece of me knew I needed to get out. I was very comfortable here. My parents were here. All of my sports teams, all of my friends, all of the things that I had known were here. And I kind of wanted to go somewhere else and experience the kind of traditional college atmosphere that I didn't, you can't really get when you're going to a school in New York because the city kind of consumes everything else. It's certainly not a college town the way Athens, Ohio was. The ability to connect with terrific mentors. I mean, from yourself as the director, Dr. Mike Sweeney as the grad director, Dr. Marilyn Greenwald, who was my advisor for my dissertation, and just the amount of support that I received at OU is just incredible. I mean, so many people who really wanted me to do well and were willing to, you know, like someone like Dr. Greenwald, who didn't know much about hockey, you know, or the New York Islanders, but encouraged me to do that project and had such useful advice along the way. And just so many wonderful students that I met, both when I was teaching there, you know, students who have gone on to do great things in the intervening years, but I mean, also my classmates, uh, so many intelligent people. I just love Athens. Uh, Yes, it is a small town. I wouldn't say it was like a culture shock or anything for me, but it's different. You know, you're adjusting to things like, you know, I'm used to going to diners, uh, you know, at midnight or whatever. Sometimes in New York City, you can't always do that at a place like Athens. I have so much love for that place. I'm looking right now in my home office here. Before I left Athens, I went with my parents to the Village Bakery, which is one of my favorite spots there. And they had a little wood carving of the state of Ohio with a star where Athens is. And I put that up on the wall here to remind myself of that OU family I had in such terrific years. And I may be 450 miles away from Ohio University, but it still holds such a place in my heart and has informed so much of who I am now as a teacher and as a scholar. Well, you know, one of the wonderful things about being a professor is getting to work with fantastic students. They come in, they spend a few years with you, and then they move on. But, of course, they take a piece of you with them, and they leave a piece of themselves behind. Reflecting on my you know, career, which is now coming to, a, to an end, I realize it's one of the best parts of being a professor, really. And I'm sure you're experiencing that with your own students, even though you're still in the relatively early stages of your career you could just imagine fast forwarding 25 30 years and all the amazing students you will have worked with and impacted i mean it's already happened for me um from before i was teaching at ohio to folks i was teaching there and now with william patterson i think that's what drew you know draws me so much to teaching just like i was drawn to journalism it's a way you can make an impact on people's lives in some form that you i just can't imagine in some of the other professions Yeah, I know I certainly have had teachers who've done that for me where I still benefit. Going back to like elementary school, the teachers first taught me how to write or, you know, uh, kind of stoked my interest in history. During that time at OU, there was so much I just didn't know about teaching and scholarship. And just to have so many great mentors there, wonderful experience. I promised that was nearly the end, but I have one more question. (laughs) I'm just going to say a name and I'm going to let you speak about it. And that's Jerry Stiller. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, So as a native New Yorker, growing up, 
one of the rites of passages, you have to watch Seinfeld every single day. Um, and so growing up, I watched Seinfeld and the reruns every day. I know every episode backwards and forwards. And of course, Jerry Stiller, the actor who plays Frank Costanza, um, the very animated father of George Costanza. And I always found that character so hilarious. As I was a reporter at the New York Daily News, very interested in local history in Queens, trying to show that Queens has its own historic sites. Uh, I wanted to do a story one day about all of the different sites in Queens where Seinfeld had filmed episodes. And then I realized probably the most famous of them is the establishing shot of the Costanza home. Whenever they show George going to visit his parents, Frank and Estelle live in a house that's actually in Astoria in Queens. You know, it's in Western Queens, uh, right over the river from Manhattan. I said to my editor, it'd be really fun to do this story. And why don't I try to get in touch with Jerry Stiller himself? He's still alive and active. And why don't I get his thoughts on this house and its place in local, you know, film history? Uh, so I called up Jerry Stiller one day and got an interview with him on the phone. And I remember I had planned it all out. I had spoken to my editor beforehand and I said, do you think I could convince Jerry Stiller to pose for a photograph in front of the house? What a story that would be. That'd be so cool. And he said, yeah, ask him. And he authorized me to say the Daily News will send a limo to pick you up. I thought, okay, great. So I was on the phone with Jerry Stiller and he was just one of the nicest guys and very funny, answering all of my questions thoughtfully. And then I said, okay, I'm going to shoot my shot here. I'm going to ask him, Mr. Stiller, can we send a limo and have you take a photograph out in front? Would you be willing to do it? And he said, oh, yeah, that all sounds great. But, uh, you know, forget the limo. Why don't you just pick me up? <laughs> I had to, like, do a double take and, like, huh? He said, yeah, yeah, you know, like, I know that they'll the limo, whatever. But, like, Nick, I'm talking to you now. I feel comfortable with you. Why don't you just pick me up? And, like, you're calm. <laughs> and I kind of couldn't believe this, and all these thoughts are running through my head of like, you know, well, I first got to go through the car wash if I'm going to pick up Jerry Stiller and, uh, and all these things about the condition of my car. But I'm like, uh, okay. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be pretty memorable. So that day I picked up the videographer from the Daily News first, and then I drove over to Jerry Stiller's apartment in Manhattan, picked it up, and luckily, uh, Julia Xanthos, who was the videographer for Daily News, she captured all of this. You could see it. I tweeted this uh, when Mr. Stiller passed away and drove him into Queens. We went in front of the house, but right as we drove up, then Jerry Stiller, this was very, it's completely spontaneous, I promise. This was not planned. He said, you know, I, why don't we just uh, ring the doorbell and see if anybody's home? I know we just said we're going to do like this photograph in front, but why don't we ring the doorbell? I think I should do it. And we're like, are you kidding? Yeah, this is uh, this would be awesome. Roll the camera. Um, um, yeah. And so, uh, again, roll the camera. He walks up, rings the doorbell, and you couldn't have planted any better. The elderly couple who lived in that uh, house from the Costanza home, they were like the classic New Yorkers with the New York accent. The guy opens the door and his wife beat her. Yous want to come in? He, you know, he doesn't even say, you use want to come in and take a tour? <laughs> and they're treating him like family. Oh my God, we know you. And the, the guy even first greets him. You know, Of course I know you. He doesn't know his name, Jerry. So he's like, you're Costanza's father. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they welcome him inside. And just like the 
you know, it's just a, a generational thing, I guess. But like the people of that generation, you can see it in Jerry Stiller and with Bessie and Jack Lopapero, the folks who lived in the house and answered the door. They're just so warm. And even though they had no idea this was going to happen, they have no hesitance. Like, yeah, come in and we'll give you a soda and we'll show you photographs of our kids. And how are you doing? What are you up to? these days? You know, so uh, kind. Um, so uh, we went through. Uh, recorded that whole thing inside the house. Um, I got my <laughs> obligatory photo with Jerry Stiller in front of the house. And we all stayed in touch uh, for <laughs> the years afterwards. Bessie knitted me a scarf. That was her thing was to make scarves and stuff. And uh, she gave me a scarf and I connected with her daughter. And you know, we were all like, you know, friends. And then Jerry Stiller for a few years afterwards would send me Festivus cards in the mail. Festivus, the <laughs> holiday from Seinfeld. Um, he would like send me a card every year uh, in December. And then when I left the Daily News, our secretary called him and told him, you know, Nick is leaving for another job. And Jerry Stiller called me and said, no, I just want to wish you well. And you did such a great job with that story. I know you can do. And it's just like this guy doesn't need to. You know, he's a Hollywood celebrity. He doesn't need to uh, make this phone call. But I know that was a long winded way of responding, but it's hard to can't describe the effect that Jerry Stiller had on my life without telling you that whole story. It's quite surreal to reflect back on a story like that when social distancing was not yeah. a thing. And obviously, what an amazing, what an amazing memory to be able to hold on to at a time when you're not getting to have those experiences for the moment. That's great. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, for sure. And like you say, it's another fond memory. Just like my time at OU, these uh, reporting days, it's uh, it's nice to share those stories. And unfortunately, in this time when we are losing a lot of people, and some because of the virus, but some just like Jerry still, you know, getting older, I think it's nice for us to document what those people mean and kind of share those stories and say, like, look at the kind of guy this was. Yeah, you know him from King of Queens or Seinfeld or whatever, but did you know that he was so willing to do this and he was so down to earth? I think it's a nice way of us sharing those memories. Well, thank you for sharing these memories with us, Nick. And we wish you well. Stay safe. And uh, we're, we'll be watching you as you uh, on Twitter and other places where you document your stories and your memories for us. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Stewart. It's great to relive the time at OU. I appreciate it. Stay well. <laughs>